getting into the word now. You can open your Bibles up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, going through a 10-week series uh, on his church. And as we've been looking at the passion that Jesus has for his church, or as he calls her, his bride, uh, we've just been seeking to have him uh, raise our passion level, match our passion level uh, to that of his for his bride. And um, let's go ahead and pray before we dig into what God would have for us this morning. Lord, it's just been a, a joy to see this beautiful organism you call the church. Uh, not a building, but uh, a group of Christians. People who love you, who've been born again, who are, are together and sharing with one another and, and uh, community, God. Uh, we pray, Lord God, for the work of your Holy Spirit in our midst today. As, uh, as again, we're confronted with the scriptures and the line is drawn in the sand as to whether we'll obey you or disobey you. Um, and, and so, Lord, let the Holy Spirit speak with power and with gentleness. And, um, Lord, as I've been so convicted in my studying and just been brought to repentance and just wanting to, um, to be conformed into your image, Lord, we pray that would just happen in every heart in this place, to the glory of God. Be magnified, Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. Uh, well, uh, this last six weeks or five weeks before today, uh, we've been diving in, looking at uh, what the church is. Uh, first two weeks, we're looking specifically at that and giving definitions uh, for the church, uh, one of which was from Mark Driscoll's book, Vintage Church. He co-wrote it with uh, Gary Brashears. Uh, and it's there that they said uh, just a great sum of New Testament uh, definition of the church. The local church is a community of regenerated believers or born-again Christians who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to the scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of communion and baptism, are unified by the Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scatter to fulfill the Great Commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. So it's a great sum of what we see across the, the historical books in the New Testament and across the, the book of Acts and across the New Testament letters um, great, great description there. Perhaps uh, you've been challenged already in today's Bible study. Uh, and you say, pray for us, Rory, I'm done. Uh, I need to go seek the Lord. Um, that's good. It's good to be confronted on what our definition of the church ha has been. And we certainly have been confronted. In the last five weeks, we've looked at uh, what our obligation is uh, to the local church in light of two uh, predetermined factors. Those being, first of all, are you saved? Are you a born-again Christian? And secondly, uh, you're considering yourself a member of Calvary Chapel of Crook County. Uh, we don't have a, a, a specific membership as of yet, but um, we are uh, convinced that the New Testament speaks of members of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see a, a joining and a knitting together of individuals committing to one another to the things we've been looking at in the last five weeks. 
And so some of those obligations and duties and responsibilities birthed out of the gospel uh, are things such as uh, our second week in this series that we are obligated to be our brother's keeper. You remember that teaching where we are to consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. We're to be mindful of each other. We're to clothe ourselves in the new man uh, for one another. In Colossians chapter 3, we saw that we're to be kind and patient and gentle and to forbear one another and, and forgive one another. And we're to clothe ourselves in the garment of love to one another in consideration of each other. That is an obligation that we have in the New Testament as the local church towards one another. Now that necessitates a regular gathering. And so we looked in the third week at um, the, the obligation, the duty, the responsibility to gather together and to be part of the regular meetings of the local church, not just Sunday morning, but all throughout the weeks, the home groups, the core groups, the prayer times, the times that we're getting together, and even more so, uh, so that we can uh, show those Christian uh, virtues towards one another. Um, we looked last week at the beautiful privilege and responsibility of stewarding the gifts that God has given us, the, the spiritual gifts that God has given us towards one another for the edification of the church, that Jesus would be displayed, that the church would be built up, that God would be glorified. And we looked last week at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the whole chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 17, and we looked at how the gifts have been given, or a gift at least, has been given to every Christian for the building up of the church. And we have an obligation to use that gift uh, towards one another uh, so that um, we would all come to maturity and built and knit into the head who is Christ Jesus. Uh, so just a few last weeks of some of the beautiful things that come out of the gospel that we are more than overjoyed to do and we have the duty and privilege and obli obligation to do so. And that brings us to today yet another beautiful duty that we have and that is that we would support the congregation by way of our financial generosity. Now, as we've studied all of these things, uh, I encourage you and, and I challenge you to talk to one another about them, to really consider these obligations, to get in the car after a Sunday and say, honey, how have we been doing? You know, how have I been doing? On a scale of one to ten, have I been, you know, fulfilling my duties to the local church as the New Testament shows that, that I'm to be, you know, a, a work, a, a response outflowing of grace. How have I been doing? Uh, sitting down with our kids and saying, hey guys, this is what we've been learning. And this is, you know, I'm, I'm teaching you now at a young age that this is what God desires his church to be, to, to challenge each other and to allow the Holy Spirit to flow out of the word that he's been speaking into your life. And so that conversation will happen throughout the week at home groups and core groups and, and uh, prayer times and rubbing shoulders and having lunch together throughout the week as we're gathering together. And, uh, and, and don't shun away from them. Welcome those conversations. Let's talk. Let's not give opinions. Let's open up the Bible when we're talking. And, and I love one of the core groups. I heard that whenever they're talking and one guy goes, hey, you know, well, I think, oh, no, 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 no. Don't want to hear what you think. Open up the Bible and show us from the word, you know, a beautiful thing to do. Uh, that we're governed by the word and not by the opinion of man. And so as we look at the New Testament, today we see the duty, the obligation to support the congregation by way of financial generosity. Now, in the last 15 years of pastoral ministry in my life, since I was 15 years old, I've been a shepherd in some capacity. I've been teaching the word 16 years ago. Oh my gosh, 
Okay, getting old. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I used to come across passages on tithing or see these times that we would speak of offerings, tithing, financial generosity, stewardship of resources. And I used to be like, oh boy, here we go. And used to go into them with, with some timidity. Uh, even this week, telling like, hey, this is, the, this is the direction we're going on Sunday. And people kind of like, oh, that ain't good, man. That ain't good, you know. And, and we, we kind of are afraid of it. Um, but I think that's because we have the wrong perspective of what this subject significance really is. That it's a matter not so much of finances or external resources, but the matter that's preached today is a matter of the heart. It's the matter of spiritual maturity. It's not a material issue that we're speaking of in essence today, but it's a heart issue. It's about signs of life in the Christian. The issue isn't money, time, resources, but it's how we use them and how we abuse them. It's how we grip them too tightly and make an idol out of them rather than realizing, hey, uh, it's all the Lord's. It's all the Lord's anyways. One preacher said, all Christian ethics is gratitude. Whatever we do with our time, with our money, with our resources, it flows from a heart of thanksgiving. What we do with our money, what we do with our time, it flows from a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude. You guys have all heard the, the saying that money is the root of all evil, and people will quote that like, like it's the Bible. Close. They're missing two words in that scripture. Do you guys know what it is? That it's actually the love of money. It's the root of all evil. It's the holding too tightly to money or to the resource and making it an idol that causes it to become sour and wrong. Money is actually a tool. Our resource is actually a tool. And it's, and it's foundational what our heart wants to do with it. Uh, you might say, well, you know, I don't really have a problem with this message. I'm not greedy. I'm actually poor. And it's important for you to note as we get into this that greed doesn't only plague those who are rich, but it actually plagues those who are poor, sometimes more so. They're so fixed on their poverty and wanting those riches uh, that they've made an idol of something that they just never can quite get. And so it's unhealthy. And they, too, will squeeze a penny until it you know, divides into or looks like it's been run over by a train or something. Uh, John Piper said, how we handle money and possessions is often the barometer of how we trust and treasure Christ. I like that. How we use our finances and our resources and, and what our wallet looks like, what our check register looks like, what our bank account statements look like. It, it's, it's a gauge. There's a needle on the gauge that shows what is this person's spiritual health? Now, granted, it's not the only gauge, and it's not the only needle that points, but it's one of them, and it's an important one. And Jesus himself said so from his lips in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither wrath, wrath nor must, or moth nor rust, sorry, uh, destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, the rationale behind all this comes in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Man, I've had to wrestle with this scripture before. There's a time in my life that I had, I had really some resources, and I had um, 
things. I had a lot of possessions because my dad had passed away. I was a 19-year-old kid with, with a pickup truck that I took over the payments for from my dad. I had a bunch of horses. Uh, I had a bunch of saddles. I had a bunch of guns. I had a bunch of old Western shirts or, or newer Western shirts that my dad would wear. I had just all these things in totes and boxes, and I had veterinarian equipment, you know, to, like, what am I going to do with all this veterinary? You know, and, and the temptation is to hold on to things that were dad's. He touched this once. This was special to him once. This was dad. This smells like him. And, and these horses, man, I remember when we went to Burns and we adopted this Mustang and we broke him in together. And, and the Lord over time was showing me, Rory, you're holding on to these things. You're never going to wear this. This is taking up place in your garage. You're driving 45 minutes to an hour one way to feed these horses and you have to put shoes on them every other week. Where's your heart at? Your treasure is here. And, and man, I, I ended up having to teach on this passage on a Sunday morning and it was then that the Lord said, it was a Thursday night, and the Lord said, it's time to, to let go of these things. And so sold my horses, gave shirts away, you know, just things had to go. And, and, and it was a relief. And it opened up so much more opportunity in my life for the kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, it's just beautiful. He's saying, your heart cannot be at two places at the same time. And specifically with money, with our stuff. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. It's in the same chapter a few verses later. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or mammon. Oh no, you don't know. You don't know me. I, I can serve God and money. You can't. From the lips of God himself, the sphere of your investment reveals the location of your affections. What are you investing in? Jesus's wisdom here is off the hook. Brilliant. It is off the charts. And it happened to me. Maybe it's happening to you. There's an x-ray going into your heart right now. The plain fact of the matter in our church series is that the subject of Christian generosity is a subject that the New Testament sets forth as one of the most essential obligations bearing on the lives of those who are part of a local church. As Gene Witt says, it is by divine design, divine design, that local churches provide the primary context in which Christians are to use their material possessions to further the work of God's kingdom. Any view, then, of how Christians should use their material possessions must focus first and foremost on local churches. This is what we see in the Bible, and to bypass this most important concept in Scripture is, in essence, to ignore what is recorded by gifted men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. The issue of financial generosity is one of the greatest spiritual concerns that we have. And it's an expression of our Christianity. It's expected to, to, to grow and to increase as our Christianity matures and matures and matures. As John Stott said, Paul did not see this grace of give, giving as a mundane matter or a redundant matter. On the contrary, he saw it as relating to the grace of God, to the cross of Christ, and to the unity of the Holy Spirit. It is important for you and it is important for me to examine ourselves in the light of God's word. 
And by the grace of God, we'll grow and we'll look different than we did three years ago. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that's the passage that we're going to use as our diving board again this week. We're going to go back to it and then we're going to jump off into other scriptures that just support it and, and comment on it. And then uh, and we'll always come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So just keep a finger in it or a bookmark or something like that. And I'm going to give you roughly 11 big uh, key points to generous Christian giving that we see in this passage. Um, number one, generous giving is an expression of the grace of God. Look at verses one and two. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. So if you'll remember, back in 1 Corinthians, and we'll go there in a little bit, chapter 16, Paul said, hey, there's a famine going on in Jerusalem, so I want you guys to set apart a bit of money so that we can take it back over and bless the churches over there. The Corinthian church was so excited to help out that, that when Paul went on to the rest of the world and over to Macedonia, he said, you guys wouldn't believe how the Corinthians were so excited to take an offering. It was incredible. They were doing this and that. And so uh, there was this beautiful, like, wave of giving and generosity but then between the letters of first corinthians and second corinthians it seems like the generosity was like oh i kind of forgot out of sight out of mind oh i forgot to do that car wash or that fundraising activity and oh and paul begins to be worried that there's not going to be any money to take to them and all of his boasting on their behalf would would be moot would be void and so he says hey guys corinthians look at the macedonians Look at the Macedonians and, or the Philippians, as we have the book of Philippians. That's who he's referring to here. Don't you know that the grace of God was poured out on them in the way that they give to Judea? And so giving, generous giving, is an expression of God's grace, of God's outpouring uh, to the church. Uh, that in great trial of affliction, verse 2 says, in the abundance of their joy, their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. They were, were a poor group, these Macedonians. And yet they were able to dig deep and, and in a sense scrape the bottom of the barrel with joy and just give whatever they could. A beautiful gift. Uh, they were very liberal. They were very generous. As you look at verse 3, I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. You might just write down three sub points here that you get out of this verse. You've heard me say this verse before. It's, it's a life verse for me when it comes to giving uh, because the Macedonians were such a great example. Paul said three things about them. They gave according to their ability. And they gave beyond their ability. And even on top of that, the cherry on top of the Sunday, they were freely willing with their resources. Literally, they gave in such extreme fashion that it was contrary to their ability, not just beyond it. Matthew Henry said, as much as could well be expected from them, they gave, if not more. The best that we can do with this notion is that the Macedonian people would forego legitimate wants in order to supply for legitimate needs. They were prepared to squeeze themselves so that other people wouldn't feel the pinch. All right? They felt the squeeze. They gave beyond their ability. They were freely willing. Like, I'm going to give more than I really even should, but I'm going to give. And, and I feel it. And I'm not going to be able to do the things that I wanted to do this week. But that's okay. Because if I don't, the Judeans 
are going to starve. The Judeans are going to have holes in their clothes. And so I'm going to feel the squeeze that they might not feel the pinch. And in verse 4, we see that they implored us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. So here we have some people that in verse 1, we see we're in deep poverty. And they were going through times of affliction, even the Macedonians. And yet they begged Paul to take their money. Begged them. They implored them and pleaded with them with much urgency. Paul, you have got to take this gift to Judea. No, you guys are poor. You, you, you guys, this isn't a good time. Don't you dare rob us of this privilege of giving. Okay, okay. You know? and, and he took their gift as they begged him to. Paul didn't beg the Macedonians to give. The Macedonians begged Paul to receive it. As we go on through the text here in 2 Corinthians, we see that generous giving supports gospel ministry. As you read there, um, verse 3, or let's see here, it's actually verse 4. They implored with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Now, not only is there a local, saintly, brother-sister ministry that happens, we'll get into that in a second, but generous giving, this is our second big bullet point today, supports gospel ministry. It supports pastors who labor in the word of God and prayer. It supports church planters and missionaries and preachers and Bible translators and church musicians. It furthers gospel ministry. And how interesting to know that even in our churches, we're being challenged today. There are men in our church who feel called towards vocational ministry. And they're just waiting for God to open up a door for them to be able to step out of the you know, truck driver zone and the construction zone and to move into 24-7 being able to minister to the needs of the saints in the, local in the local body. They're just waiting on the Lord. And that's one thing that generous giving does, provides for those who will perform ministries full-time. You look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7-14. through 14. It says, who goes to war at his own expense? We're going to war, but you're going to have to buy yourself an M16. What the? You guys don't have like a budget for that here? <laughs> uh, who plants a vineyard and doesn't get to eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen that God is cared about, caring about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partakers of the hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Jump down to verse 13. Do you not know that those who minister to the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And so the men and the women even that are in full-time ministry, they should be able to plow in hope. They should be able to live from the gospel that they are living to promote. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, let him who is taught the word share in 
all good things with him who teaches. And then if you look in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. And that's speaking of financial support, especially those who labor in the word and in doctrine. And so we see that generous giving helps support gospel ministry for preachers, for teachers, uh, the Old Testament covenant that we read, uh, the, 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 the tithe and the offerings supported the economic livelihood of the priests. And not only that, it supported the custodians and the janitors of the temple. I mean, could you imagine if our custodians here were just full time around here, this was their job was to just be part of just custodial work here. I mean, what would it, what could it possibly be like? Uh, And not only that, in the Old Testament, those that labored in the musical aspect and provided for the orchestra, they were the singers, they were the musicians, they played. They also were in full-time ministry in the Old Testament. And so generous giving helps provide for ministry to be happening on more than a nine-to-five basis or on more than a, you know, Sunday morning basis. More and more and more and more for the kingdom, for the gospel to advance. And so the vision for our giving is that it should support gospel ministry by providing for those services vital to promote the gospel and to get it out there to the community. Giving also provides resources necessary to carry on effective ministry, like the curriculum that we pay for in the children's ministry department. Copyright freedoms. We pay for these lyrics to go up here due to copyright laws. And so we have the freedom to display any Christian song up here that you want to. Um, Classrooms and the building that we uh, provide, that the Lord provides, that resources provide. Uh, Computers, copy machines, copies, uh, colored copies, utilities, uh, instruments. The supplies, including the janitorial supplies and the toilet paper and the paper towel and the Kleenexes. Ministry in the 21st century is just a little bit different even than ministry was in the first century. Fax machines and computers and keyboards and bulletins and new strings for the bass guitar. And, you know, it goes on and on and on. And and this requires generous giving. A third big thing that we see here, and we just read it in the 2 Corinthians 8 passage, generous giving meets the needs of our brothers and sisters. Remember the Jerusalem church had fallen into a state of poverty, hard times, famine conditions, and the Jerusalem church was depressed. And the Mediterranean people were able to aid them and help them and bless those brothers and sisters. Let's look in Acts chapter 2, verse 44. Um, in Acts 2.44, we see that this community, uh, uh, communal gathering of the church, all who believed were together, had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So there was a selling of stuff and then a dividing of it as they saw needs come up within the church. Jump over two chapters to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Now, it might seem for a second like communism, but it's not communism. Communism says, what's yours is mine, and it takes it by force. But authentic Christianity says, what's mine is yours, and it gives it out of love, and it gives it in response to grace. So we don't have communism, we have communism. 
All right? We have fellowship, koinonia. The word is commonism, community, sharing. That's what the word literally means. Has nothing to do with communism. It's the spirit of God working in the hearts of individuals who see a need and they say, I see a need, I can fill it, and so I'm going to fill it. As you go on in reading in Acts chapter 4, it says, With great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Listen to this. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. So here in this Acts 4 passage, we see a few things. First of all, these are Christians. These are born-again believers. You see that back in verse 32, the multitude of those who believed, all right? Then we see that they were of one heart. They were of one soul. There was a commonness, a one accord happening in the church. We see that no one said, that's my stuff. This is my stuff. Now, it's kind of interesting. It says that um, no one said that any of the things that he possessed was his own. They were his own, but he didn't look at them as his own. This is my stuff. Rather, in New Living Translation of that very verse says, they felt that what they owned was not their own. They knew that it was the Lord's. They knew that it was a result of his great grace. And one of the things that will happen as the Holy Spirit is moving in the church is that stuff will become a vehicle to be used in God's service. Generosity is a result of a changed heart. It's a changed posture of the heart and the will and the mind. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. In verse 34, you saw that people sold their material resources. They brought them to the feet of the apostles. And then what happened? The, the apostles took the resources, financial, they sold stuff, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. And the apostles, in their wisdom, they were full of the Holy Spirit. They used um, the, their wisdom to distribute as anyone had need. And there was nobody that lacked in the church. Beautiful. We're going to see that later on, back at our diving board passage in 2 Corinthians. But let's go back to another Acts passage real quick. Acts 11.27. It says, in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, and you might underline that and note that, the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by hands of Barnabas and Saul. So they sent it to the elders and the elders distributed it. So generous Christian giving supplies for the needs and meets the needs of our brothers and sisters. And believe it or not, there are needs at Calvary Chapel of Crook County. Fourth, generous giving is an act of worship. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, our diving board passage, not only as we had hoped, they, they not only gave as, as Paul would have hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Jump down to verse 7. But as you abound or excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound or excel in this grace also. So we have that generous giving is an act of worship. 
The, the people of Macedonia gave themselves to the Lord. That is worship. That is Romans chapter 12, verse 1 worship. Offering up your lives as a living sacrifice to the Lord. That means finances and resources and, and everything you might have. You know that it's God's. And then you in turn give it as the Lord directs, as the Holy Spirit directs. And we see that we're to excel in this type of worship of giving. Paul says that in verse 7, excelling not only in spiritual gifts like faith, speech, knowledge, diligence, and, and even love, but excel in the grace and the gift of giving, giving gifts. So a mandate from Paul to excel in the worship and responsibility of giving of our resources. Why should I give? Because it's an act of worship. And we've looked at that in this church series, that the chief end of our church is to bring glory to God. It's upreach. It's making his name great. And the more we give, the more he is admired, the more he is adored, the more he is glorified. Giving is an act of worship. And once we realize that, and we make that really our foundation, even though it's point number four in our study today, is we make that our foundation, then things like amounts of money or what the exact resource might be that we give, all of that amount and specific, it kind of falls away because we're worshiping and we say, it's all yours. All of these resources are yours. You gave to me so graciously, I respond by giving graciously in return, Lord. Philippians chapter 4 verse 18, Paul writes specifically about the money the Macedonians sent to Jerusalem and, and helped Paul out with even, and he says that it was all a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Do you catch the Old Testament picture of worship there? Sweet-smelling aroma, acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to the Lord? It was like the placing of a sacrificial lamb on the altar. It was an act of worship to the Lord. And it's the same for us today. As we drop the check or the money or the, the coin in the tithe box, or as we drive the person to bend and we use our fuel and our mileage and our tires, as we spend a Saturday being spent for somebody's yard manicure, whatever it might be, as we're giving, it's, it's a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, but on the contrary, if you refuse to give in response to God's grace, Jesus or God says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, that you are robbing me. Alright? So giving is worship, refusing to give is robbing the Lord. Will a man rob God? Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 says, Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you, God? In tithes and offerings, for you are cursed with a curse. You've robbed me, even the whole nation. If we have a heart that is stingy towards God, we are robbing God of worship and admiration and glory that is due to his name. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 16, 16, where he says in the law, three times a year, all of your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place that he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he's given you. So whenever the Israelites would go to worship and go to bless, they weren't to come empty-handed. They were to come with uh, the, the, the things, however they're able, according to the blessing that they'd had from, from the Lord. 
Same principle is good for us today. Deuteronomy 16, 17 in the NIV says, Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. And in our giving to the local church, it's the same. In proportion to the way the Lord has blessed us, we are to give a gift as an expression of worship in the same way that we sing a song or lift our hands or read the scripture in worship or listen to a sermon. We're to give resources to the local church so that the gospel can be promoted, so that the ministry can be supported and that brothers and sisters can be blessed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we read in the NIV, I like the way the NIV phrased it this week, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. In other words, this is the standard operating procedure in collecting funds. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Why the first day of the week? That was the day the church met in response to the resurrection, which prompted great joy and celebration and worship to the Lord. So when you're worshiping, gather up a sum of money in proportion to your income. So why do I give? Because it's an act of worship, because it supports gospel ministry, because it meets the needs of brothers and sisters. Now, how should I give? What are the principles by, with, by which I should govern my giving? Most of us, if you've grown up in the church, you'll say, well, the Bible speaks of a tithe. And, and that is true. The Bible does speak of a tithe, but we're kind of misinformed on the whole tithe thing. We know that in the Old Covenant, there was a tithe. Um, there was a first 10% that was to be given to the Levites. It was called the Levite tithe or the Lord's tithe. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 18. And the point of this was to support those that were in ministry. A tenth of the produce, a tenth of the animals, a tenth of the money were given to the Levites and the priests and those who attended to worship in the tabernacle. Uh, a yearly legislation, legislation, it wasn't an occasional option for the people. That It was legislated, you will give a 10% of everything that you have to the Levites, all right? So that's where we generally get our idea of, of tithe, right? Um, but it's Old Covenant and it's Old Testament. And it's also a little bit inadequate and insufficient if that's your argument. You look at a second 10% or a second tithe. Tithe is a unit of measurement meaning 10th. A second tithe was required each year referred to as the festival tithe. Read about it in Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 27. And it was enforced after the people moved into the promised land and all of their land was divided up to them. Uh, they were to save up 10% to essentially have a giant potluck festival in, in designed to build community and have a religious celebration. All right. So party time in the church, right? A 10% of everything that you had went towards that. So that gives our required giving, if that's what you're going off of out of the law, not 10%, but if you're doing the math, 20%. Then there's a third tithe. Oh my gosh. You might want to leave. Right. If, okay. Hey, you're not having to teach it. Okay. Um, there's the poor tithe in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 through 29. And the poor tithe had the purpose of providing social welfare for those who couldn't provide for themselves, namely widows and orphans. Now, the interesting thing about this, this 10% was given uh, once every three years. So really, the, the main required tithe in the Old Testament was a 23.3% 
tithe of everything that you had, it went towards these things. So, Old Testament tithe 23.3%. And then, above and beyond that, after the required giving, uh, the heart took over, and there was even more giving to be done, more offerings to be done. Now, David Jackman, who's a renowned uh, British evangelical Christian speaker, um, uh, wrote that the New Testament emphasis on generous giving mitigates against the idea of a percentage levy. Since some would be able to give far more than 10% for a time, uh, may not even be able to give that. Uh, If you think of, uh, excuse me, I I butchered that. Since some would be able to give far more than 10%, and others for a time may not even be able to give that. If you think about it, the law of 10% lets a lot of people off the hook depending upon the nature of their disposable income. It creates the notion that instead of everything belonging to God, only a tenth belongs to God and nine-tenths belongs to me. It's wonderful. I can deal with that, but I don't like the idea of God invading all of me, all of my accounts, and all of my balances, all right? So uh, some of us were like, give me a law, give me 10%, and then I don't have to do anything more than that. Obviously, the barometer on the heart is going, all right? Um, uh, Alistair Begg says, the New Testament doesn't lay down the principle for the tithe, but neither does it set it aside. Therefore, it's not unreasonable to assume that the New Testament presupposes that the giving of God's people would be more than equal to the standard pattern under the Old Covenant. Now, admittedly, if all Christians gave 10% of their income in the church, there would be a surplus on hand of unbelievable proportions. One writer said that if every member of the Southern Baptist Convention gave 10% of their income, the Great Commission would be fulfilled in five years. All right, that's the gospel going to every tribe, tongue, and nation. We know there are hundreds of unreached people groups in the world. That's if one denomination... In the United States, or I guess it's in the world, um, Southern, uh, if one denomination gave 10% of their income, the gospel would go to the end of the planet in five years. Ron Blue wrote, if all Christians were reduced to a welfare income and they gave 10% of that amount, the church of Jesus Christ, as we presently know it, would immediately double its receipts. A research project done by the Moody Monthly Magazine reveals that the average church member gives only 2.5% of his or her income to the church. You'll remember last week we spoke of the duty to faithfully steward the gifts that God has given you. And we looked at a poll that was done that said within the local church, 20% of the people use their spiritual gifts to serve and edify the body. Uh, They're part of the church where the rest of the 80% of the members typically are consumers and take and don't help out and they don't use their spiritual gift. Now that poll is also for the giving, the, the the, the poll is the same for financial contribution, that 20% of the church gives and uh, 80% um, takes and, and really and sucks, in a sense, sucks the life out of that. Um, and uh, it's interesting, for the sake of dreaming, uh, I was doing just a little bit of mathematics, and, and um, 
This is not to put a trip on anybody. This is just to dream the dreams of God and see what if our church was like a New Testament church in the fullness of what we've been studying. Um, Let's just say that we have 160, this is just a conservative estimate of tithing adults in our congregation. All right, and let's just say that those 160 um, people make about $18,000 per year, all right? So you divide that by 12 months and divide that by uh, 10 as the tithe, and what you have is the church bringing in, just in tithe, uh, $24,000 per month to be used for gospel advancement, to blessing brothers and sisters, uh, to meeting the resources, and to taking the gospel to the ends of the world. Um, now, it's just interesting that with that conservative estimate um, of, of members and income that we recently had a meeting where the, the church board was trimming down the budget to try to make our budget meet $9,000. We're not making $9,000, and so we're going to have to look at, you know, in the months to come, maybe even, we got to get down to eight, eight, five. We got to get down to eight. What, what do we got? We're going to have to, we're sending letters to the orphanage in Uganda and saying, just so you know, we're probably going to have to be cutting help to the orphans. Just so you know, Egyptian engineers preaching the gospel in Egypt, we're going to be, we're going to have to cut. Just so you know, potential adopting moms and dads, that fund is going to be cut. We're, you know, and maybe that's just where the Lord has us. But just to say, um, to dream the dreams of God, of, of even if it was a tenth is what we're talking about, all right? Um, man, the potential that, that we could bring in, you know, some $400,000 a year as a church if even 100 people making $40,000 a year tithed, we'd be bringing in, this is an interesting figure, 33,333 and a third dollars. In, you know, it's interesting. I was like, wow, that's a bunch of threes there on my calculator. So, you know, it's just rough and it's just, you know, it's like, Lord, what would you do? What would you do if, if all of us, and I'm convicted as I'm studying this, if we became givers, Lord, as you were a giver, even uh, on the floor of what we're talking about, of, of a 10%, what could you do in our church if we had $400,000 a year to distribute to the advancement of the gospel? We should be giving, maybe not the 10% or a 23.3%, but consistently, thoughtfully, sacrificially, proportionately, cheerfully, and expectantly, as we'll see the text move on here. Um, As we continue on, number five of our bullet points here, generous Christian giving is inspired by the cross of Christ. All right? Uh, Christ is our pattern. He is the model in all of this. He's not asking you to do anything that he himself hasn't done a hundred times what you could even imagine doing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So the best argument for Christian duties and even Christian giving is taken from the love of Jesus. As Paul says, it's the love of Christ that constrains us. It's looking at Jesus and I'm moved. He's a giver. I'm moved to give. He's generous. I'm moved to be generous. He's benevolent. I'm moved to be benevolent. He's compassionate. I'm moved to be compassionate. He is rich, was rich, as the verse says in verse 9. As being God, equal in power and glory with the Father, he was rich in glory and blessedness and everything you could think of in the upper world. 
And yet he became poor, poor in circumstances, lived a poor life, died in poverty, was poor for our sakes, that we might become rich through his poverty. And all of the barriers that we might find to our generosity, the way we react when God asks us to give it, or, you know, we become hoarders, you know, not even so much because we want stuff, but because we, we fear. We refuse to be hospitable. We can always look back to, to Jesus as the remedy and the enabling power to be generous. For those of us that don't, you know, couldn't care less about giving, we look to him who cared more than we could ever care about giving. And we're moved to give. For those of us that don't want to be hospitable, he opened the door into his home and said, come in and don't just be my guest, be my family and share in my inheritance. That moves us to give because he is so gracious. Man, verse 9 is like mega for us. Jesus as the motivation towards giving. Six, generous giving is proportionate. 2 Corinthians 8, 12, if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he doesn't have. You know, this sacrifice wasn't determined by a prescribed percentage, but in proportion to their means. And it's here that we have the New Testament principle of proportionate giving. Try saying that five times fast. The principle of proportionate giving. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, we go back to it, but Paul says, On the first day of the week, let each of you not only or let each one of you lay something aside, storing up how? As he may prosper. That there may be no collections when I come. Or when we go back to the Acts chapter 11 passage, each disciple gave according to his ability. When you think of Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9, you have you know, the, the few days before Jesus is crucified and he comes into the house and the woman is there with the alabaster flask full of costly oil and perfume. And she breaks this thing and, and washes his feet with this fragrant, preparing him for his burial, washes it with, his, with her hair as an act of worship to the Lord. And the words that are used to describe the sacrifice is that the alabaster jar was very costly for her to give. And then later on, we see in verse 8 of Mark chapter 14, Jesus says, she has done what she could. So in the principles of giving, it's proportionate to what God has blessed us with. She has done what she could. He has done what they could. In Luke chapter 21, it's the principle in the beautiful story of Jesus. Look there and watch the widow who gave all that she had, her last two mites dropped in the offering bucket as worship to the Lord. And he uses a woman who wasn't worth two cents as his classic illustration on giving of a generous, generous heart. The Lord knows what we have and how we can give in proportion to our ability, in proportion of how the Lord gave and has given us. For most of us here and in the Rogers family or right in the middle of this mix, 10% shouldn't be the ceiling of giving that we should stop at but it should be the floor to move from. It may be a good place to begin for some of us, but in the offering concept, in the worship, sacrifice, beyond the ability, freely willing, are concepts that we can learn from. The question isn't, how much of my money am I going to give to God this week? The question of, 
How much of God's money am I going to keep for myself this week? C.S. Lewis said, if our expenditures on comforts and luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those who have the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. Randy Alcorn, Oregon author, you guys know him, said that God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. And in this passage, the diving board passage that we've been looking at, we see generous giving contributes to equality. Let's read it, 2 Corinthians 8, 13 through 15. I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, and that their abundance may also supply your lack, that there may be equality, as it's written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. You know, Paul isn't saying, and neither am I, that, hey, you there, you should really give and just pinch and squeeze, and you should be the one that's like the poor guy so that all of us can, you know, live in luxury. It's not what we're talking about. We're speaking of an equality, and there's going to be times when you're struggling, and, and, and there will be giving to you and to that need. Julius Neer, the former president of Tanzania, said in his Arusha Declaration that he wanted to build a nation in which no man is ashamed of his poverty in the light of another's affluence. And no man has to be ashamed of his affluence in light of another man's poverty. That there'd be an equality. Good concept in the church. Seven, generous giving is a proof of love. Very quickly in 2 Corinthians 8.24, we read that uh, you can show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. To be a giver is just a proof that you love people. You love others. You love Jesus. Moving right along, eight, generous giving must be four things. Generous, bountiful, purposeful, and cheerful. We see all that in verses five through seven of 2 Corinthians 9 as we're moving to the next chapter. Uh, this, this passage, this thought continues, that this gift would be ready as a matter of generosity, you see at the end of verse 5. That it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not of grudging obligation. Verse 6, but I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful Giver. Now, in this set of verses, there are three descriptions of how not to give, and there's three descriptions of how to give. Verse 5, it's not to be sparingly, or covetous is another word, perhaps your version says. Verse 6, um, uh, or see, sorry, verse 5, not to be grudging obligation. Verse 6, not to be sparingly. Verse 7, not to be grudgingly or of necessity, forced in a sense. That's not how we're to give. And then we see, but it's in verse 5, to be willing. In verse 6, it's to be bountiful. In verse 7, it's to be cheerful. There's bad giving and there's good giving. If we give sparingly, 
The word sparingly is likened to if we were to say, spare my life. In other words, let me keep my life. Don't take it from me. Spare no effort that I could keep my life. The same thing could be used if we were to give sparingly. Our heart isn't right in that. Not to give out of grudging obligation, but to give cheerfully, verse 6. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. John Piper wrote in a sermon of the heart that sees God as a taker rather than a giver. A sparing heart has a relationship to God that feels him as a taker rather than a giver. If my life is being drained away by God because he is so incessantly and solely demanding, then I feel like grasping after the things of the world to meet my need. Every time I look up, I see the pointing finger of God demanding, give me, give me, give me. How can I look back down at the needs of the world and say, take me. I will gladly spend and be spent for your good. Beneath the bountiful giving of verse 6 and the cheerful giving of verse 7 is a heart that looks up to God and sees a giver, a supplier, a helper. When this person looks to God, he feels replenished, not drained. Just like the literal translation of verse 6 implies, his giving is based on blessing, God's blessing. God's the great giver. He's the fountain. He's the father. He's flowing in ever-replenishing blessings and grace and hope. So the big issue for our lives this morning is how we see God. It's a heart issue. Do we feel him? What do we feel him to be when we look up into his face? Is he a giver or is he a taker? If we give grudgingly, our approach is, I have to do this. If we give dutifully, it's, I need to do this. But if we give out of a response to what Jesus has done for us in thanksgiving of his grace, it's an, I get to do this. Again, in verse 6, we see that generous giving is likened to a harvest. If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap a sparing harvest. If you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. Now, it might sound like Paul's preaching a, theolo or a theology of prosperity here. That's not what he's preaching. He's not saying, hey, give so that you can get more rich and get a better car and just live in, in the life of luxury. But no, the idea in the New Testament is give and watch God give you more so that you can give and God will give you more and God, you'll give. And the idea is that we become distribution centers and not warehouses and storehouses. It's not that we can just store up and get really big and make it make but no, it's, it comes in, we send it out. It comes in, we send it out. And God will continue to give more and more and more. And yet, this beautiful scriptures of verse 9 of Proverbs chapter 3. We read it earlier, how giving is worship. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. You give, you just watch your barns overflow, your vats overflow. A similar passage in Malachi 3.10. Right after the Lord says, you have robbed me in your tithing and your offering. He then says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this. This is the only place in the scriptures where God says, test me. You don't believe me? Try it, all right? Here's what the Lord says. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out on you such blessings that there will not be enough room to take it. 
We receive expecting to be blessed. We give expecting to be blessed, anticipating God's joy in our obedience. Jumping back to 2 Corinthians 9, 7, we give as we purpose in our heart, not grudgingly or necessity, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Spurgeon calls this the master gun. In our giving, we are to be cheerful, laughing, joyful, tears of joy coming down as we write that check. You know, as we place it in the offering container, we we say, Lord, this is amazing. I can't believe that I get to give to you in response of you giving so much to me. It's not to be as of compulsion as if you hear the old mosaic whip cracking in your ear. But it's to be of joy and cheer. Read a small excerpt from Spurgeon. He says, we're not counting the pennies and reckoning them to be as precious as drops of blood, but giving with ease and spontaneousness and freeness and pleasure. Even if you're so poor, you can't even give the two mites that makes a farthing. Still, you may give to God of your time. You may give to God of such ability as he has teaching of the young or distributing the printed word or in some other forms of service which come conveniently within his reach. But none must escape from being givers to God in some way, for we are all receivers and should be all dispensers. Give him your prayers. Give him your praises. Give him such efforts as you can. But let us all be givers and let us take heed to the text and be cheerful givers too. A cheerful giver is willing to give. One who does not need to be bled, as we sometimes say. He does not need that the knife should be constantly upon him. He's not like the young grape, which must be pressed and squeezed to get the wine out because it's not ripe, but a cluster bursting with invigorating juice. We ought to be like the honeycomb dripping spontaneously with virgin honey, all too glad if we may but be accepted in our gifts through him who is the altar and who renders both the offerer and the offering acceptable to God. Be a cheerful giver, dripping in generosity, dripping in bounty, dripping in benevolence, because he's the generous God. He's the extravagant God. He's the God who gave us the indescribable gift. Quickly finishing up, generosity, this is number nine. Generous giving promotes thanksgiving. As you read in verse uh, 12, this abounded through many thanksgivings to God. And isn't that the case? When we see the need or when we feel the need being met by the generosity of our brothers and sisters and just their response to God's grace, we rejoice and we're thankful. And it goes on in verse 13 to say that they glorify God for the obedience of your confession in the gospel of Christ. When you're obedient to give, as the New Testament says to give, God is glorified. And that's the chief end of our church, to bring glory to God. And don't you see that? When people are give, you're thankful that you, you got to you know, have your supply met for that month and you're thankful and you worship and thank God. We experienced this this last week as a church as one of our projectors was out. And we were like, oh man, what are we going to do? We could probably buy one and, you know, and, and maybe we could buy two, I don't know. And, 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 and uh, just praying, and like, no, we're just going to get one for now. And someone comes in and says, I want to buy another, the other projector. <laughs> and we were, like, we were like, yeah! We're like hugging each other and like, thank you, God, this is amazing. How did you do that? You know, we're glorifying God and we're thankful. Beautiful worship happens, wonderful Thanksgiving. And and 11, we see verse 14. This is our 11th bullet point. Generous giving brings affection and love. They prayed for you 
They long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. So, financial giving, a a duty to the local church, but not just stopping there. We're talking of resources to give. We're talking of time and subpoints to your time. That might mean giving of your joy, giving of your tears, giving of your friendship, giving of your service, giving of your body to help with labor, giving of your skills to help babysit and care for children, budgeting of your time and your nights with who you're going to spend with whom so that you can love and pour out and be generous giver of your time and of your nights. You might be a generous giver of your knowledge. You know, maybe you know how to hang sheetrock and tape and texture it. Come talk to me. We've got a big need in our basement. Just kidding. Okay. Um, maybe you've got tools and materials or books or, you know, toys for kids or uh, clothes and food. You've got a home. You've got a room. You've got an extra bathroom. You've got a yard that could be used for, you know, a playtime or daycare area. Hard work with value, hospitable. No matter what, even if you're sleeping on a couch and you don't have a penny in your pocket, you have got resources to give. And in response to God's generosity, we want to be generous. We're going to have the worship team come back up as I close with a a portion of B.B. Warfield's book, The Person and Work of Christ. B.B. Warfield was professor of theology at Princeton Seminary from 1887 to 1927 beautiful passage uh, from his book here. It says, Now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. For though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. And yet we object. And he addresses this. Objection one, my money is my own. Or my time is my own. My emotional resources are my own. My gift is my own. My home is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where would we have been? Objection number two, the poor are undeserving. That man or woman in the church is undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said, They are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels instead. But no, he left the 99 and he came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection number three. Well, they might abuse it. The people of the church might abuse the money. Answer, Christ might have said the same with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make an excuse for sinning more. And yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christian, if you be like Christ... Give much, give often, give freely, give to the vile, give to the poor, give to the thankless, give to the undeserving. Christ is glorified and happy, and so will you be. It's not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And so I hope as we've studied this today that you'll reflect biblically. uh, Whoa, revelry. (laughs) That you'll reflect biblically. And what we've looked at, I'll I'll be honest with you, man, convicted this week, many days of studying this, just sat in the kitchen with Lindsay yesterday and said, man, the Lord is just moving on me that um, that the tithe, the 10% shouldn't be the 
you know, the, the ceiling that we give at it. it it's, a, it's a good starting place for us, honey. And, uh, you know, my wife's an accountant. She does all the financial book work. She gives me an allowance every month. You know, I thank God. I haven't touched a tax form since I was 18. But there's a problem with that because Lindsay writes our check every month to the church. And I know that it's being given, but I'm not a worshiper in giving it. And so just saying, honey, from now on, when we write the check, we pray over it. We thank God for his blessings to us. We thank him for his indescribable gift as chapter nine ends. We skip that. We bring our kids in and we teach them about giving and being a generous giver, even to the local church. And I pray that you guys would do likewise, that you wouldn't feel at all a guilt trip put on you. If there was a tone in that, it wasn't from the Lord and don't receive that. As I even did a little math on my calculator last night, it was just general thoughts and, and dreaming in a sense. Wow, what if? And this is just, this is like a biblical, like, well, that, that'd be a good starting place. Wow, Lord, what could you do? What would you do as, as we elders talk of church planting in Oregon? And, and we talk of, you know, people that feel called to vocational ministry. And we talk of, you know, cutting the budget. Lord, Lord what would you do in our church? And you know what? If every person in this church was was generously giving and you know we had to sell the projectors and sell the chairs and go to folding chairs and you know I took another job or something like what happened like praise God that your hearts have been given to the Lord praise God for that you know we know Prineville's economy we're aware of that we're sensitive to various situations but we just say let's look at the cross in closing let's look at Jesus who was richer than we could ever imagine, and he became poorer than we could ever imagine, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Don't you feel spurred on to be a giver like Jesus? Let's pray for his strength. Lord, we do need that, and Lord, just, I'm, I'm convicted, and I want to give with a cheerful heart, Lord. I, I want to weep and cry and thank you for your bounty that you've given me, Lord. And I want to give in response to that because you're so good. I want to be thoughtful and I want to be considerate and calculate and budget just specifically how can, how can we give to the advancement of the gospel? How could we give to help brothers and sisters? How can we give to, to missionaries? Lord, what could you do in this church? Lord, take us higher up and further in, in this grace of giving. As the text actually even says that it's, it's righteousness. Grow us in righteousness, Lord. Grow us in giving. Speak to the hearts by your spirit that, that no one would ever say, oh, Rory, he really pushed me into giving. No, that it would just be the Holy Spirit spoke that maybe I've been even doing too much right now. I've been trying to do it all and just myself. And Lord, let us be led by your spirit in our giving in proportion to what you've blessed us with.
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.